Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. Have you seen the Harry Potter movies, Sam? I have not. I My aunt gave me the first book when I was younger, and I read about 30 pages, and I stopped. And I really haven't paid too much attention to Harry Potter, other than just being part of general North American society. Yeah, well, I, I read the books when I was younger. I read the first three, and I was pretty into them, but I never watched the films. And I watched the last movie the other day. And are, are you familiar with the race of goblins that exist in this film? Not at all. You're going to have to do some explaining. Well, I think you'd be interested to find out. They're essentially all very short men with hook noses, maybe kind of partial balding hair and they all wear suits and the function of the goblins one sec let me guess money yeah they run the international banking conspiracy (laughs) and use magic to create and control wealth wow jk rowling you have some answering to do yeah it was a bit of a surprising experience to watch this and it led me down a bit of a rabbit hole online and apparently in the books they're also described as having pointy beards is pointy beard a anti-semitic trope Yeah, I wasn't really sure about that. But in the books, they're also described as having darker skin and slanted eyes. Jeez Louise. So I actually think that originally they were not making fun of Jews, but actually a whole different racist trope. And then in the film, they were restructured to be specifically and exclusively a send up of Jewish stereotypes. Wow, that's very weird. Yeah. So it was a bit uncomfortable. A lot of uh, strange Christianity in the film as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Harry Potter dies. He comes back. They uh, celebrate Christmas each year, even though they're witches. Very, very strange stuff. Uh, mixed messaging over there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of ridiculous stereotypes, did you see the Jewish community uh, Twitter response to Rahani's tweet? I did. I did. I Once again, I'm a big fan of these tweets. Coming from one of the highest offices in Iran, for people who didn't see it, it basically says... May our shared Abrahamic roots deepen respect and bring peace and mutual understanding with Shana Tova, hashtag Rosh Hashanah. So why I like it so much is I, however you feel about this guy, it is, he's doing the exact same thing that every North American politician is doing. The Stephen Harper Rosh Hashanah card. Or the Justin Trudeau Rosh Hashanah invitation or the Tom Mulcair invitation or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. It's all the same. But uh, Jewish institutional Twitter land did not think this was the same and were very upset at his appeal to their shared Abrahamic roots. For those listening who have never considered that perhaps not everyone in Iran wants all Jews dead, uh, you should check out the Forwards article in which they sent someone to Iran to prove that that was in fact correct. Yeah, it's weird. We talked about this a few weeks ago when the article came out. I I had mixed feelings. Like on the one hand, I think it was relevant for the people who read the Forward to kind of have that approach. On the other hand, it's pretty obvious and absurd that we need someone to tell us that everyone in Iran doesn't hate Jews. Well, now you know. It's con- been conclusively proven. There was a uh, reporter from the Daily Forward who went and wrote it on a piece of paper. So who's the guest on the show today? So we have the editor of our favorite publication that we use most of our material from, uh, Yoni Goldstein, is on the show today to talk a bit about some political conversations that he's recently been a part of, as well as the way the Canadian Jewish News functions. So the tail end of 5775 brought a lot of things, and one of them was an article that appeared in the pages of MTL blog. Now, before going any further, I think we need to articulate Trafe Podcast's overt disdain for this website. It is an exploitative BuzzFeed-esque website without any of the decent things that BuzzFeed has on it. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And this article was, of course, no different. 
It was an advertorial titled 10 Realities of Having a Jewish Best Friend in Montreal. Now, if you thought that this was going to be nuanced in any way, the subheading is Oy Vey with an exclamation mark. So this article essentially listed a series of stereotypes about upper middle class white Jews, such as guaranteed to find great food in the fridge. There's also an expression that all Jews are well connected. They also, of course, write about how everyone envies their escape when it gets too cold and disappear into the grandparents' condo in Florida. Anyway, the reason we're bringing this up is because at the end of this article, it reveals that it was a piece commissioned by the Combined Jewish Appeal for their fundraising campaign. Yeah, if you live in Montreal, you've definitely seen these ads around. It happens around the the holidays in September and October. There are signs on buses, on bus stops, on placards. And this was, I guess, seen by the Federation CJA's outreach team as a useful way of trying to draw the youth into donating to this campaign. So basically, this is a disaster of an article, and MTL Blog knew that enough to take it down a few days later. But it was taken down only after a petition was created on iPetitions in the form of an open letter to the Federation CJA by a a group of young Jews calling them out for putting forward these Jewish stereotypes. On a kind of lighter note, I like the part where they're like, we're all about making fun of Jews, just it has to be like clever making fun of Jews, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, there was a big part of this article that was a, a love-in for the Federation CJA, talking about how they share dedication to the CJA mandate, they share dedication to the CJA mission, but this was them going off the derrick, so to speak. In reality, the Federation CJA mission is consistent support of Israel in all circumstances. So the petition's alignment with the Federation CJA on that note seemed very uncomfortable, but I did like that they were confronting them about this article that they commissioned. Yeah, I mean, if we want to be generous, we could say that this is a tactical approach by the authors of the article, who are trying to say that regardless of how the institutional Jewish community views them, they're a part of the community, and they want their perspective on this particular opinion to be addressed. The, the initial demand of the petition was for the article to be taken down, which it was. And now there is an updated version of the petition that asks for a prominent apology from this, the CJA. So they are asking for them to make some kind of public statement and to also explain the ways in which they're going to engage Jews who are not implicated in the Federation structure. Or specifically Jews who don't meet the stereotype put forward in articles like this. And definitely behind the authors of this petition in their effort to pressure the CJA to take issues of diversity more seriously within the Federation structure. But as someone who tries to prioritize an anti-colonial politic, the discussion of a more representative colonial structure, which is the CJA, who every year at their funding drive give their money to Israel, is something that's very difficult for me to swallow. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you. What I will do is I'll give some props to the writers of this petition for challenging the narrative that the Federation presents of the Jewish community. So there have been some developments lately in terms of the way that the Quebec government is cracking down on the autonomy and movements of Muslim people. Yeah, beginning in June or July, the Quebec liberal government, headed by Philippe Couillard, tabled two bills. One was Bill 59, and the other was Bill 62. According to their accounts, Bill 59 aims to ban hate speech and speech inciting violence. And Bill 62, which would ban the wearing of a niqab or burqa in any capacity related to receiving public services. And this has been in the media lately because there's a consultation process for these two bills that's reaching its end this month. And there have been some high-profile deputations in opposition to both of these bills. 
So before going any further, I want to play the role of providing some context for people who are maybe unfamiliar with Quebec politics. The Liberal Party came into power last year following the unpopularity of the Parti Québécois and their Charter of Values, which was a legislation that targeted the Muslim community in Quebec, particularly in terms of receiving public services and being employed in the public sector. Yeah, and this definitely seems like a continuation of that effort. So basically, this new bill is kind of complicated and weird. Um, there already are anti-hate speech laws on the books. And it seems like what they're doing is they're creating a context in which the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal will be able to prosecute hate crimes on an undefined basis. And a lot of people are very nervous because of the way that this is being framed as a response to the increase in, quote unquote, homegrown terrorism of domestic radicalization, that hate crimes is now going to be weaponized against the Muslim community in a new way. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's interesting. This bill has now received critique from all directions, one of whom was Fatima Houda Pepin, who actually quit the Liberal caucus over their secularism policy, as in it wasn't strong enough. Basically, she was concerned that this legislation will ban religious satire. And the response of Couillard is actually telling to what the intention of this bill is, where he basically said, no, no, Quebecers' right to mock religions is going to, is, don't worry about it, that's protected. It's actually, the intention of the bill isn't to ban mocking religions, but to target those who incite others to hate or commit violence. Yeah, but one of the surprising deputants against this uh, new series of bills was the mayor of Montreal. Yes, because there's actually a citywide effort to confront the same issue that has more effectively brought in the Jewish community and other actors. And they see this as a threat to that effort. In fact, someone from the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs came out very upset that they weren't consulted about these uh, new bills. And so it seems like the usual players in the marginalization of the Muslim community were not consulted here. And there's a bit of a rebellion going on. Yeah, I mean, Denis Coderre said, said that this hate speech law is dangerous because it doesn't actually define hate speech and went on to use one example, which was swastikas being written on cars in Cote d'Ange. So he chooses an example of anti-Semitism when, according to Statistics Canada, anti-Muslim hate crimes have increased 44% since 2012. So there's a clear kind of hate that he's referencing here. Yeah. And, and during the entire debate around the previous government's Charter of Values legislation, there was opposition by the Jewish community in conjunction with the Muslim community because this was going to affect both parties. Obviously, the Muslim community was going to be affected much more severely than the Jewish community. But with new efforts like this one, especially with the city effort, the Jewish community has nothing to fear. If anything, the Jewish community has been brought into a part of this process. And in this regard, was actually upset that it wasn't brought in enough in this process. It's a shame that the Jewish community doesn't see this for what it is, which was an abuse of hate crimes legislation to go after religious minorities in this country. I think Jews should be a bit more sensitive to that history. So there have been a couple of World War II era Nazi news items that we've come across lately. And so we decided it was time to bring back the sousaphone. <laughs> In the last few days, there have been some weird articles about the use of methamphetamine-based drugs by Nazis during the Second World War. Yeah, it seems like most of the soldiers were on it at the time. Yeah, the way it was framed by this Norman Oler fellow is that it was kind of presented as coffee, and they were basically popping these pills at, at an extraordinary rate. 
the most interesting part for me of this piece was a reference to the fact that the Nazis rejected recreational drugs such as cocaine, opium, and morphine, which were readily available in Germany at the time, because they considered them to be Jewish. Oh, interesting. Well, I think I think the most interesting part to me in all of this is that it turns out that Hitler's personal physician was a doctor who was secretly Jewish, and he got Hitler completely dependent on the drugs before he killed himself in 45. So joke's on you, your closest physician was Jewish. So the other story that we wanted to bring up here is one that takes place in Poland and surrounds a creative measure that was taken to combat the extreme summer heat. Yes, this is an absolutely horrible decision that was made by the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial Museum, where they decided to take a hose and cut holes in it and place it above the six or seven foot mark outside so that water would spritz outside of these cuts that were made inside of the hose. Yeah, you might call it a, a spray shower. Yes, most people on the internet called it a spray shower. Uh, in fact, there was a large scale condemnation from all sectors of the Jewish press. With that being said, the Memorial Museum chose to respond to this critique in a somewhat unique way. Uh, they didn't call them showers, they referred to them as misting stations. Yeah, and the statement is kind of amazing, mostly due to the tone. They just seem really frustrated that people were giving them a hard time about this. And in one part of the statement that starts with the phrase, and one more thing, they take issue with the fact that the nuance of the exact method of execution of the majority of Jews were not from showers. I just think it's funny that this museum is playing this kind of historical academic role and looking down their noses at what they perceive as these uninformed masses that clearly don't understand the actual history and, yeah. and are clearly misinformed. And that's the only reason that they would be having a response like this. Yeah, it's, it's just generally a bizarre situation. But anyway, that's our Nazi roundup for today. So we've reached our most popular segment on the show, uh, Shkoyach. This is the segment where me and Sam both give a Shkoyach, or a bravo, a positive affirmation, to a person, place, or thing that we think is great. David, what Shkoyach do you have for the listeners this week? So my Shkoyach goes to a name. Uh, it's a name of a man who is featured in a CBS News article regarding speculation on whether the Jewish holidays affect stock prices. This is clearly one of those uh, <laughs> one of those articles that was clearly written by Jewish people for Jewish people, but had the unfortunate effect of resembling anti-Semitic literature. Yeah, I think we should start that point for the end of this conversation, but we will get back. Don't worry, okay. listener. So my Shkoyach goes to a man who is interviewed in this article as a Wall Street expert named Art Cashin. Wow. That's and, a fantastic name. Yeah. And and it's and it's actually spelt like cash in. And he is he is called upon in this article to explain his understanding of the Jewish holidays. Oh boy. One uh, sec. Do you think he's Jewish? There's no way that man is Jewish. Art? Hold on, let me look this up. Whoa, that's him. Oh, yeah, Whoa, he not. has his own show called Art Cashin on the Market. Yeah, he's definitely not. Just moving a little bit beyond the name Art Cashin, can you just talk a little bit about what evidence they give to whether Jewish holidays affect stock prices? Well, the main evidence is interviews with other Jewish Wall Street insiders huh. who say maybe it happens, but maybe not. Toward the end, they have more interviews with people who say not. They say that before any holiday, there's often a change. 
But writing things like this in the context of pretty pervasive understandings of the Jewish role in finance being one of international control very easily falls into that narrative, really easily reinforces those tropes. I think it's definitely incumbent upon us as Jews to not particularly encourage those tropes. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. I mean, if you, by all means, give a shkoyach to Art Cashin, but I think an anti-shkoyach should go to CBS News for publishing this. So anyway, Sam, what's your shkoyach for the week? Moving progressively through time, the last two were about 100 years ago. This shkoyach goes to an event that happened last year, so I'm moving my way up to the present. Um, it was pretty much the most incredible moment of the Ford dynasty with regards to Jews. Uh, the Fords being Rob and Doug Ford, and I feel like you might have an idea of what I'm talking about. Wait, is this, this is something that happened a while back? The reason I'm talking about it now is that it's almost the one-year anniversary. I think I know what you're talking about. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, at a debate last year, Doug Ford, who was running for mayor of Toronto, Doug Ford, brother of Rob Ford, was at the Community Hebrew Academy of Toronto when some upstart candidate asked Doug Ford to talk about his brother's use of the word kike. Yeah, I remember this very well. I guess maybe for people who haven't listened, I'll read the quote, but do you remember what Doug Ford said? Yeah, you know what, let's just play the clip. You know something, my, my doctor, my Jewish doctor, my Jewish dentist, my Jewish lawyer, my Jewish it, accountant, we've learned our family, can you please, please let me finish. So, so do you want to talk about what happened after this? <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is just a lead up. I think the best part is coming up. After talking about how all of the professionalized people in his life are Jews, Doug Ford decided to double down in a particularly interesting way. The Ford family has an extensive relationship, a great relationship with the Jewish community. Matter of fact, my wife is Jewish. So very quickly, he backtracks to say her mother, her parents, her mother's parents were Jewish, okay? Her grandparents on her mother's side, they're Russian Orthodox Jews, okay? Yeah, so let's, let's play the clip. My mother's family has Jewish bloodlines. I don't practice Judaism. I never have. The shkoyach goes to the whole, the whole fiasco, the whole Ford dynasty fiasco around Jews. It's definitely the gift that keeps on giving, and I'm glad that we're able to usher in 5776 with memory of this, this amazing piece of tape. And I think actually maybe this will start off a trade podcast tradition of every year. Our own Rosh Hashanah tradition is that we'll broadcast this clip for both our and all of our listeners' collective enjoyment. We're joined today by Yanni Goldstein, who is the Toronto-based editor of the Canadian Jewish News. Hi, Yanni. Hi, how are you? Not bad. Do you mind just giving the people listening an idea of uh, what you do? Sure. So uh, I came on board here in January 2014. And uh, for anybody who does or doesn't know CJN history, the paper has been around for, for decades. But toward the middle of 2013, announced that they were closing because of a number of issues, uh, among them declining readership, etc. 
uh, about a month and a half after that, there was sort of a big uh, social media campaign to save the CJN. A lot of people seemed very upset about it. I actually <clears throat> wrote uh, on another blog at the time that uh, I thought the reason the CJN was, was dying was because it, it, it had always sort of held a centrist point in the community and that center was kind of dropping out. In any case, uh, it took about a, six weeks to two months for the people running the CJN to realize, oh, we still have a actually a really devoted fan base and loyal readers and and maybe we can we can salvage this thing. So they hired me to sort of rethink the paper and oversee a redesign of the paper. And uh yeah, we've been going at it ever since. So since January of last year, we've uh, we've been, you know, fiddling with the format. I think it's turned into more of a news magazine than the sort of traditional newspaper it used to be. And sort of my goal is to uh tackle as many significant issues in the Jewish community, whatever, really, whatever, whatever there is to talk about, uh, Israeli politics, poverty in the Jewish community, sex abuse, how community institutions interact with community members, uh, culture and art. And then there's also always economy and social issues in the Jewish community as well. Yoni, do you think that there's been a shift in the focus of the content as well as the politics since you've come on board? Yeah, you know, one of the challenges, I suppose, and I I guess really all, you know, printed traditional media is is dealing with this, is how to sort of consolidate the the loyalty of your readers and also grow at the same time. Uh, We're one of the few publications that seems to actually be be doing a decent job of this in that we've managed to keep our loyal core readers who are generally in their 40s and 50s. There are also older readers as well, but but sort of the the sweet spot in terms of our readership is in in their 40s or 50s, a baby boomer generation. And then at the same time, uh, we seem, and this is anecdotal, but also, you know, we've seen sort of a lot of growth on online and in subscriptions among among younger people who are sort of starting to realize that there are, there are other people out there whose narrative might might have been different than the one they they knew growing up, and also uh, you know having the power and the ability now to, to to try and do something about it. So I think we've become a lot more issues oriented, and I think we've become we've become a place that's fairly representative of the Jewish community, not entirely, and I, and I don't think that's really possible on a week to week basis to give an entire view of the community. But we do our best to, to get as many different viewpoints out there, often clashing viewpoints on the same issue of the paper. And, you know, my philosophy is the community papers should represent the community as accurately and as fully as possible. And to do that, sometimes we have to talk about uncomfortable things, and sometimes we have to put forward uncomfortable ideas, because if we're sweeping it under, under the rug or pretending we don't have these, these issues or debates in the community, then I, I don't really see how that's helpful to anybody. One of the issues that seems to be coming up in the last couple months is this question of invoking the Holocaust and how politicians Mm -hmm. do it for various reasons. We kind of reached out to you after an August 24th article in the Canadian Jewish News written by Jody Shupak Mm -hmm. that asked the question, is it kosher to invoke the show on politics? Could you give listeners a little bit of an overview of that piece? Yeah, sure. I mean, all all of this, all of this, the talk recently about this topic really stems back to, to to two particular events. But but one I'll start with was that there's a a Jewish politician in Toronto named Mark Adler. He's a, currently an MP and he's running for re-election in a uh, in a riding that borders on the Bathurst Street Jewish corridor in the city. 
He is a conservative MP. He had a big sign up outside of his party headquarters that claimed that he was the child of Holocaust survivors, and, and that was sort of you know one of the big bullet points is why you should vote for Mark Adler, because he's the child of, of Holocaust survivors. Um, Jonathan Kay, uh, the editor of The Walrus, um, tweeted out a picture of this big campaign sign and, and questioned the motive. Uh, and I should disclose that uh, Jonathan was my uh, was my boss at the National Post and hired me, and, and I really have the utmost respect for him. Uh, although I, I do disagree with him on this. I, I don't personally think there's anything wrong with invoking the Holocaust in the way that Adler did, especially in his writing where there, and I know this for a fact because I grew up in the writing, where there are tons of children of Holocaust survivors. There are also quite a few Holocaust survivors themselves living in the writing. So I, I thought it was relevant information uh, in that writing. What what was lost in all this and, and what the CJN was the first to report was that Adler was not, in fact, the first child of Holocaust survivors. We found an, a, an MP from Quebec who was the first, and, and she told us how disgusted she was that Adler would be trying to use the Holocaust for partisan gain. Um, it's also worth mentioning, though, that Adler's NDP competitor in the York Center writing also mentions the fact that he's the child of Holocaust survivors in his campaign literature, although that didn't stop him from going after Adler on Twitter. But, you know, more generally to the question of whether it's right or wrong to invoke the Shoah, I think there is a very limited space where, where it may be okay when you make it a very when you make it a personal experience and a way of connecting with, with voters, which is sort of a goldmine for politicians. I mean that's what they're that's what they're always trying to do. Anything else, you know, when you start comparing when you start comparing the, the actions or the ideas of the leader of a party as betraying the memory of of the Holocaust or the memory of the six million who, who died in the gas chambers and in the concentration camps, then you're really you're really stepping out of line. And and that refers to a second story that happened in Toronto where a uh, prominent Jewish family announced that they were hosting a fundraiser for Justin Trudeau. And another prominent member of the community circulated an, an, an email response in which, among other things, said that this person would be betraying the memory of all those who died in, in the Holocaust if he didn't protest the fact that Jews would try and support Justin Trudeau. So I think most people saw that as being very out of line, and many people who would, who would not vote for the liberals and, and who have questions about Trudeau, even, even they thought that that was really too far out of line. With the issue of the Jewish Defense League picket, in the Canadian Jewish News coverage of that, it seemed like while there was critical coverage, it seemed like the spectrum of opposition to it was a lot more narrow than with Adler. There was an op-ed from an immigrant rights lawyer, I believe, who was joining the Jewish Defense League picket. And then there was the CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs that, while disagreeing with the tactics, seemed to agree with the general alignment of the Jewish community, the conservative party. And in terms of the issue with Mark Adler... I was actually a bit surprised to read your piece in The Walrus because mm -hmm. when I was reading the CJN coverage, it actually seemed fairly critical of Adler. And in that instance, it actually brought the question to me of how much of the paper do you feel like you are in line with on a day-to-day -day basis politically? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't really measure the paper based on my political beliefs or interests. What I try and base the paper on is is giving um, a snapshot of what the Jewish community thinks. And often, like I said before, those are, that can be very conflicting views. So yeah, I mean there are people there are people uh, here in Toronto. Not only people, not only the people who protested outside the Trudeau event, but you know many more people who support who supported the idea that there should be a protest. I personally don't agree with that. I, I don't I don't really understand what the impetus was for that. 
But, you know, that's really, my perspective on it is really neither here nor there. I write a column in the paper every week um, that's that's reflective of, of my viewpoint. But the rest of the paper is, is supposed to be reflective of the Jewish community at large. And to say that there aren't people who uh, who agreed with the idea of protesting this Trudeau event would be would be it would be inaccurate. I think there were a lot of people who had major questions about that as well, myself included. I was the first one to write about it in my column a week or two before we started getting the other articles. But yeah, no, the uh, the paper is not designed to be the mouthpiece of Yoni Goldstein. It's not. It's really not designed to to show the political beliefs of anybody it's it's designed to not be partisan and to be as close of uh, a close a demonstration of how much debate and and conflict there is in the Jewish community as anything both in the Jewish press in North America but I think also particularly or what has been more surprising for me is the, in the kind of non-Jewish press in your mainstream Globe and Mail's National Post Montreal Gazette there's been an increasing emphasis on the relationship between capital J Jews and the conservative party. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this trend? Why is this happening now? Okay, well, I mean, look, you, you go back to exit polls, you know, it's those exit polls from the 2011 election. It showed about 52% of Jewish voters voted for the Tories. Now, I mean, you can speculate as to why that is. Obviously, the Harper government's stance on Israel, I'm not going to say support of Israel, because I think a lot of people who do support Israel would say that what Harper's doing is not entirely supportive of Israel or of their view of Israel. But Harper's stance on Israel has been very, very supportive of uh, the Netanyahu government. I, I think that that plays to a lot of people, and, and I understand why. And you know, I think we at the CGN have gone to fairly great lengths, certainly in the last couple of weeks, but really overall, to point out that in reality, the platforms of the three major parties, at least when it comes to Israel, are not all that different. And they're all very supportive of Israel in their own ways. But yeah, it does it does um, present a major fault line in the community as well. And, and I think based on some of the events we're seeing in this election, you're starting to see how vigorous and at times angry that the discourse has been. I wanted to switch a little bit back to the rhetoric or tone that's going on in the last few weeks in the Jewish press. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels to a certain extent like, and and I guess this came up in the Walrus piece, but there's a way in which people are trying to draw back some of the more fiery rhetoric. Last week in the CJN, there was that CJ piece calling for unity and not uniformity. And it seemed a little bit awkward or uncomfortable as someone who allies more on the left side of things to mm-hmm. see a group like Sija calling for unity when they are so divisive in so many other ways? Um, Look, I- I'm not sure to what extent Sija and other groups were caught surprised by the rhetoric as, as you describe it, which has been unquestionably worrisome. You know, it's possible that they that they expected it to be this way. I'm sure some would make the argument that, that they play a part in, in this sort of rhetoric. And yes, it is yes, it is awkward. And it's awkward when you have other groups like the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center in Canada saying, you know, we should all we should all get along and everybody has their right to their opinions and we love Canada because it's a democracy, etc. But but we love Harper also. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that one article, uh, one piece calling for unity is going to change the mindset of people who have questions for the sieges of the world, but it's a start. Yeah, and I think 
before before we end the interview, I, I I just really wanted to ask about some of the internal workings to the Canadian Jewish News. Um, when when there's a special to the Canadian Jewish News op-ed, what is the process around that? Is someone pitching you a story? Is or is it a different editor? How does that work? Most people pitch me. Uh, occasionally, writers will pitch editors who they were editors or reporters actually who they work more closely with, and they'll get passed on to me. But most of the time, it's people who are pitching me. Sometimes I'll find a writer in a blog somewhere or somebody makes an interesting comment on Facebook or Twitter and I'll specifically get into contact and say, hey, do you want to flesh that idea out? I think it'd be a good piece for the CJN. I'd say, you know, maybe 25% is that kind of thing where I'm reaching out to people who I think who who are different and who have never written for the paper before but have some unique perspective or have given a hint that they have something deeper to get at. You know, another 50% is people who contact me, and some of them are regulars, and some of them sort of come out of the blue or every once in a while. And then the last 25% is people who, who come to me via either other editors or other writers for the paper or other interested parties, like my parents. <laughs> well, part of, part of the reason, I, I guess this is, I hate to, to harp on this issue that I raised before, but part of the reason that I'm so curious is because reading your writing in, in several different publications, including the Canadian Jewish News, it seems as though a consistent thread in that writing is a desire for more of a civil discourse around a lot of divisive issues within the Jewish community, you know, openness to talking about some distinctions between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, some openness to talking about some of the extremism happening within the settlement movement of the West Bank. So when I open up the Canadian Jewish News and I see op-eds from people who are like very violently pro-settler are, you know, harping about the fact that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, it can sometimes be a bit confusing when those voices are so intensely highlighted, but voices that are of the opposite persuasion tend to be marginalized to the letters to the editor section. I think in the early days of my tenure, that was the case, where a lot of those voices were on the letters page, and, and sort of we had a bunch of old, older colonists who, who had come up in a different time when the paper was perceived to be more center and right. I think we're doing a lot better of a job of, of, of highlighting the left-wing voices. I mean, we had Mira Sukarov, who's now a mainstay on our columnist pages, on our commentary pages, writing, you know, questioning uh, the JNF's actions of, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I think I think we're starting to do a better job of it. But is it confusing? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. Conf I think it is confusing, but I don't think that's in a bad way. I, I think that's I think in in sort of showing these different points of views. Uh, and sometimes putting them up literally right against it, right against each other, we're showing sort of the 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 divisions and the the and the confusion in the community. And I don't think that I don't think confusion is necessarily a bad thing, but uh, but we should be able to talk about the things that that, that uh, we should be able to talk about our differences and the things that we really believe strongly in and really believe strongly against without it becoming personal. And if that's confusing, then then that's only a representation of the fact that these issues can be confusing in the community and really do divide people. Well, I'm excited to hear that there's a, there's a path to more leftist voices in the Canadian Jewish news. Uh, but Yoni, Yoni, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This is really great. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Take care. So that was our interview with Yoni Goldstein of the Canadian Jewish News. Hopefully longtime friend of the show. We've got some feedback about how the show ends a little abruptly after the interview. So we've decided to try something new this week. We're going to spend a couple seconds at the end of each episode recommending a book, a show, an event. Or highlighting something that we think is terrible. 
So I think David has the first recommendation. Yeah, so my recommendation for today is The Free Voice of Labor, uh, which is a documentary from 1980 that was made by Steve Fischler and Joel Sucher for Pacific Street Films. It's about the documentation of the Yiddish anarchist movement in America by Paul Average, the uh, historian of this period. Who's basically written the book, multiple books on anarchism in North America in the 20th century. So a sub-recommendation would be check out any of the books that he's put out. Yeah, he actually acted as a consultant on the film. And uh, in 2006, AK Press began distributing it. It's, it's a double DVD, so you also have to get Anarchism in America if you buy it. Wouldn't recommend Anarchism in America, a bit of a strange movie. But, but moving back, David, can you tell the people listening why this is a good film? So it's a great film because it's a window into the lives of these Yiddish anarchists who were engaged in active labor struggle in the beginning of the 20th century in a way that I don't think exists anywhere else on film. It's incredibly inspiring. It really replicates the feeling of this time in a way that I don't think any other specific documents have done in my experience. And after we talked about the Yom Kippur balls uh, on the last episode, we got a lot of feedback that people who are interested in hearing more about this time and this movement, this is a great place to go, the free voice of labor. You can find it on YouTube. You can watch it for free or you can buy it from AK Press. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. Today's episode was recorded at CKUT in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sax Syndrome for the music that you heard on the show. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to treyfpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Yeah, that's a great passage, shared Abrahamic roots. I would like to hopefully do something with that phrase one day. Maybe it could be the name of our interfaith dialogue group. <laughs> shared Abrahamic roots with Sam Bick. Yeah. Let's take that part out. <laughs>